Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hi again, everybody. Did you know that from downtown Buffalo, we are 35 minutes away from downhill skiing and snowboarding and less than an hour away from Ellicottville's Holiday Valley Resort, a top ski destination in the Northeast United States. I'm Peter Sabota. Adult sexual offenders are often thought of as especially resistant to change their behavior. But what about youth and adolescents who engage in sexual harm toward others? In this episode, our guest, Dr. Doyle Pruitt, discusses the possibilities of changing the narrative of youth and adolescents who engage in this behavior. She argues that current misperceptions frame youth offenders' behavior and influence their social interactions, often creating the conditions for the very recidivism that those who work with this population are trying to prevent. Dr. Pruitt goes on to discuss the stigma and isolation faced by youth who harm others sexually, the legal challenges related to this issue, and the intervention approaches that can be used effectively with this particular population. Doyle Pruitt, PhD, is Assistant Professor at the Cuca College Division of Social Work. Her research interests include the impact of family involvement and trauma-focused treatment and outcomes of youth who cause sexual harm. Dr. Pruitt was interviewed by Molly Wolf, MSW, and a PhD candidate here at the UB School of Social Work. Hi, I'm Molly Wolf, and today I'll be talking with Doyle Pruitt about youth who cause sexual harm. And Doyle, I think you specifically don't call them sex offenders, right? Can you tell me about that? Sure. Well, the juvenile justice system was premised on the belief and understanding from human development that adolescents are dynamic and malleable to change. So from this perspective, we allow adolescents to make mistakes learn from them, and then transform. But when we label a person, it becomes more difficult for them to change as they're now trying to change who they are versus changing a behavior. So if we externalize the sexual aggression to a behavior that can be stopped, we provide the youth the opportunity to adapt and develop along a different, safer trajectory while still holding them accountable for past behaviors. I also find that there's an extremely hostile and narrow perspective of individuals labeled sex offenders. This perspective is often shaped by media's coverage of extreme cases of adult sex offenders, like the worst of the worst. So the association of the label sex offender to a youth often becomes isolating, debilitating, and shaming for them. And the behavior that they engage in is appalling and something that I don't condone but I see them as damaged, hurting kids who, if we give them the right supports, environment, and treatment, they have the opportunity to change the course of their life. So really just trying to externalize. Hmm, That's so interesting. What would you say some of the biggest misconceptions around this issue are? Again, there's a heightened sensitivity and tendency to overreact to any sexual behavior in children. So what society as a whole tends to forget is that not all sexual behavior in children is problematic. Many young children engage, rather, in age-appropriate sex play, such as playing doctor. 
or they repeat words or phrases they overhear in adults without knowing what they truly mean. We just assume when a kid says that they had sex, sex means the same thing to them as it does to me or to you. So of course on the flip side, there's members of society who tend to minimize the behavior. The boys will be boys, or no one got hurt, so what's the big deal? And the polarization of perspectives when it is a youth who causes sexual harm is astonishing. So take this Dubenville, Ohio rape case. And this is a case where the two accused offenders were star football athletes. They were well-liked in the community and the school. The female victim was at a party with these athletes, these offenders, and all the kids were drinking and she was intoxicated. She has no recollection of the assault, which was witnessed and documented via social media. So not only was she assaulted, but other kids at the party saw her being assaulted and were taking videos and pictures and posting them on Facebook. Public outrage from this really ranged from calling the two boys pedophiles and rapists to victims themselves. And the female victim was either supported as being a victim, but more often I found she was being called a slut and blamed for the assault because she was intoxicated. And then it became a character assassination. So I think also the lack of awareness of what precipitating factors contributed to the development of sexually harmful and inappropriate behaviors in children and youth, and the fear caused many people to take what they know about adult sex offenders from major media outlets in their own personal experience, whether they've been victims or had someone that they cared about or knew be a victim, and they assign that understanding to what a youth who caused sexual harm means and what that would then mean they look like. That means aspects of the offense, such as victim selection, grooming, offending behaviors, and non-sexual behaviors that support the offense are viewed in that light. So youth who cause sexual harm then are simply adult offenders in the making, and that their sexually inappropriate and grooming behaviors are the same as adults. And that's a big misconception in the field and in society in general. So when most people think of a sex offender, they picture the disheveled, creepy looking guy hiding in the woods, watching little kids play on the playground. Or they think the most recent criminal case highlighted in the media. And those cases tend to be extreme in terms of number of victims, offenses, and duration of the abuse. What most people don't know is that the offender is often known to the victim and has a relationship with them. That means that there were some non-abusive and even positive experiences shared. This seems to be more distressing to the adolescent survivors I work with. So after they disclose, the abuse may stop, but what also stops are any good things that happened with the offender. They lose the relationship with them, good and bad. And for many of these kids, the offender may have been doing something, engaging in a non-sexual activity with them that no one else does, you know, making them feel special. So they no longer have that person who takes them fishing or help them with their homework or even protected them from their sibling teasing them. So the survivor does not always see their offender, whether it's an adult or a youth, as evil, disgusting, or bad. They know that that person is not all bad. 
And that's a big misconception is the expectation that victims see their offender as evil, as a monster. So we have adults and adolescents who act out sexually, but we also have children. And when we talk about children under 12 years old, we're talking about another subgroup that the field terms children with sexual behavior problems. And this is a very diverse group with a range of behaviors. The cause for the behavior may be due to their own experience of abuse and maltreatment, if they've been exposed to a sexualized environment, including the media, so not just in the house, R-rated movies. And it may be due to their own impulsivity and reactivity or as a way to self-soothe. Many of these children are female, while youth and adults who act out tend to be male. And the recidivism rate for this population with treatment is less than 2%, which is less than the general population. So they really do differ from their adolescent and adult counterparts. In your estimation, what causes a youth to engage in sexually harmful behavior? And what do those behaviors look like? Well, that's a great question. And my response really comes from the base knowledge that no one is born a sex offender. As with any other set of behaviors, this particular behavior is a culmination of individual, social, cultural, and family factors that influence its development. We know that many of these youth have adverse life experiences and trauma histories themselves. Many have been exposed to violence in their home or community, and many come from families that are functioning at a less than optimal level. For instance, many parents of youth who cause sexual harm have their own trauma history and substance use problem. You know, this impairs their ability to effectively parent. For the youth, around 44% of them have a psychiatric diagnosis, and that's double the rate found in the general population. They tend to have learning disabilities, function poorly in an academic setting, have a lower IQ. They tend to have gender stereotyping beliefs, homonegativity, and hostile masculinity. These youth tend to be socially awkward and isolated. And then we also know 40% of them have a history of non-sexual delinquency and antisocial behaviors like fire setting, animal cruelty, shoplifting and substance abuse. So that's the youth. The family that they're in tends to be middle to lower socioeconomic status. Some research has shown us that one-fifth of these families receive some form of government financial support. Now that in itself means that they're multi-stressed, have other things going on that is very taxing to the family system. The existing empirical research tends to describe the families as either enmeshed or disengaged, have poor boundaries, which makes sense if they're enmeshed or disengaged, let clear and consistent roles, so we'll see parentified children, people moving in and out of different roles, and to be less supportive. And what's really interesting is we know that 43 to 62% of these families have another family member who has committed a sexual assault. So the sexual behaviors are classified as either contact or non-contact offenses. Contact means hands-on, and these offenses include things such as kissing, fondling, penetration, frottage, or rubbing. 
I'll joke with my students that if you go out to the club, there's going to be fraudage. <laughs> <laughs> Non-contact offenses include taking sexual photos of another person, exposing them to pornographic images, exposing oneself, making sexual comments, or peeping. So knowing what we do about this population, why is it important for social work to know more about this population? Well, 20% of reported sexual assault cases are committed by juveniles. And the victims are often known to them through family relationships, peer groups, the neighborhood they live in. That means that there's often ongoing contact. So if the youth is receiving treatment in the community, while they're receiving treatment, they're probably gonna see their victims. If they're receiving treatment in residential, then when they're released from residential, they're gonna see their victims. So as a field, social work, it's really important for us to understand this population because we can provide support and oversight within the many roles that we fill in making sure that not only the victim and potential victims are safe, but also that the juvenile is safe. I tell the kids that I work with that have committed sexual harm that it's not just about keeping others safe, it's about keeping him or her safe from being in a situation where they could act out and they don't have support systems there to help them, or in a situation where they could be accused of acting out when really they didn't because their credibility is already questionable. I think it's also important to know more about this population because of the stigma and isolation that happens to these youth. So for instance, in a school setting, if administration and teachers find out that a kid has acted out sexually, which doesn't mean they shouldn't find out, but what tends to happen is a focus on keeping the other kids safe. And while safety is always the number one priority, we wanna do so in a way that doesn't isolate the kid who did act out because that just puts him or her at risk for acting out again. You know, it increases stress, it makes them feel bad about themselves, it gives them the message, we expect you to act out again. So we wanna make sure that they're supported, they don't see themselves in only a negative light. Again, it's that looking at it as a behavior instead of a character flaw or who I am. And then it doesn't turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Many of these youth I had mentioned have engaged in other delinquent behaviors. And the sexual harm is just one aspect of behaviors that they've engaged in that are harmful to themselves and others. And these behaviors come from a result of poor affect regulation, maladjusted social skills, limited empathy, inadequate impulse control, attention and gratification seeking, and unhealthy sexual and relationships norms. And when we see past the sexual harm and understand what caused it, social workers can more adequately address the root cause and work towards preventing future harm. Social workers are also most likely to be the first or only person to have contact with the youth. Without legal stipulations, treatment is often not mandated. And follow through for these families with outpatient care is very challenging and you know, they have multiple stresses. So the burden that treatment puts onto the family can be a hindrance for follow through. 
And then for some families, they might not think the child did anything wrong. They might think that it was a false accusation by the victim. So school social workers particularly can help to minimize the stigma that these youth experience, help them develop coping skills, empathy, and understanding of healthy sexual behaviors and relationships, and work towards ensuring safety of all in the school. So again, it's not just safety of the other kids, it's safety of the kid who's acted out so that he or she doesn't start to get bullied, aren't put in situations where they're gonna to have to find a way to cope with stress when they don't have those skills yet. As a caseworker, social workers can help provide logistical support and psychoeducation to the youth and their family. While clinical social workers really can use a strength-based ecological perspective. So as social workers, we're all trained to collaborate with other professions like psychiatrists, teachers, county caseworkers, and advocates. So when we use these skills to support a youth who's acted out sexually, to help them and their families, we work towards addressing that behavior, the cause of that behavior, and we help to keep the community safe. Wow, you mentioned legal stipulations. What are the particular legal challenges related to this issue? Oh, that's a good one, SORNA. (laughs) So the Sex Offender Registration Act is a federal law that was passed in 2006, and it was meant to improve registration and notification programs for convicted sex offenders. And there's a three-tier system, with tier one being the least serious, three being the most serious. Here in New York State, we don't necessarily use tier, we call it level one, two, or three. So What's particularly concerning about SORNA with youth is that level two and three include sex offenses against minors or children under 13. A level two sex offender has to register, they're required to register for 25 years, while level three is for life. And that means that they have limitations on where they can work, live, and if they go to school, they have to notify the institution of their registration status. For a juvenile, this is a debilitating and life-altering requirement. You know, it could mean that they can't get into a dorm. They might not even be able to get into a college. So if a youth acted out sexually, was convicted at the age of 16 as an adult, they have, till they're 41 years old, if they're a level two offender, that they're on the registry. So that really influences somebody's life, and it's counter to the juvenile justice system's belief that kids can change. Other legal challenges, you know, I find that external supports from schools in the county in terms of like pins and probation is really key to treatment. So as a clinical social worker, collaborating with schools and county caseworkers allows me to focus on the youth and the family's clinical needs. I'm not the bad guy who's telling the kid what to do or stop doing at school. I'm not the probation officer. They have a probation or county worker who's going to be asking those questions. And that frees the youth and the family up to not see me as an adversary, but to develop a more trusting relationship that allows for openness. Obviously, when you have the requirements of a mandated reporter, but breaking curfew isn't a mandated reporter issue. So unfortunately though, these supports and team approach to treatment is not always an option. And that's usually because of funding, resource availability, 
and unfortunately, even an understanding of the population and how a collaborative approach can be more beneficial. And again, that goes back to that belief that youth who act out sexually are just adult sex offenders and they're gonna go on offending no matter what we do to help them. So when the victim is a sibling, the family faces even more legal challenges. Now the family has to manage the treatment needs and symptomatic effects of both the aggressor and the victim while trying to keep a family system intact. And again, these are multi-stressed families for the most part, so their skills and abilities to do that is really gonna be impaired. The difficulty of keeping that system intact and meeting the needs of the youth who acted out and the victim is exacerbated when the family is dealing with criminal and or family court, social services, and especially when there's a fear of a future offense, which not only means future harm to both kids, but possibly a child protective report and removal of one or both kids from the home. You know, and that accusation that a parent failed to keep their children safe really shuts down the communication and treatment. So this is extremely challenging for a high-functioning family where for these families that have minimal resources and supports can really be, like I said, debilitating to them. When we think about it from that perspective, what approaches to treatment have been utilized and what areas does it need to address? and what hasn't worked <laughs> right. and what has worked. <laughs> Great. Well, I think, you know, the first place we start with this population is a comprehensive assessment, rather, should be conducted. And that assessment is looking at offense-specific and non-offense-related variables that are specific to the youth in their family system and environment. So the assessment really tells us what needs to be done, what's the level of risk of the youth acting out again, so if the risk level is high, then they might need residential treatment. Because as they go through treatment, it's gonna bring more stuff up and cause more behaviors to come out. They don't have the coping skills. You're talking about difficult topics with them. We don't say, of course you're gonna act out and that's okay. We say, you're probably gonna act out. Can you do that safely? Do you have the supports and external resources available to keep you and others safe? And so really looking at what the treatment needs are is really good for the assessment. So as with any treatment, once you do the assessment, identify what the needs are, you establish goals in the treatment plan. These are mutually established goals. So this is our working contract with the youth. So they know this is what's expected. We are gonna talk about your acting out behaviors. We are going to talk about your family, you getting bullied, whatever it is. And then working on developing trust and rapport. That works towards developing that strong therapeutic relationship. That's important with any client system that we work with, but really critical with this population. They have to feel that they can trust us and they're not going to be judged. Nobody wants to be judged. And when we feel like we're being judged, we shut down. So we're not going to talk. So. Doing that with the youth is, is really key. Being empathic with them. Again, as I said, what they did, the behavior is not okay. And I try to convey that message that I don't agree with your behavior, that's what needs to change. But you as a person have redeeming qualities. You have positive qualities. There's likable stuff about you. 
We have to be aware of our own triggers and values too. This is really hard work. When you're listening to a disclosure of a 14-year-old who sexually assaulted a two-year-old, that really challenges you as a professional. So a lot of self-care. And really, the field has made this significant move away from a confrontational approach. Confrontation isn't going to work. Confrontation is based on judgment, that I am better than you, I'm going to break you, I'm going to get you to confess, and that's not productive for anybody. So what most treatment programs are using right now is a combination of psychoeducation, therapy, and when necessary, psychopharmaceutical interventions. So with psychoeducation, it tends to focus on healthy sexuality, social skills, affect regulation, impulse control, and then any other topics specific to the youth like drug and alcohol treatment. And therapy tends to be provided individually in a group format and with families or some combination therein. Cognitive behavioral therapy and multi-systemic therapy have had the highest success rates with the population when we're measuring on recidivism, so sexual recidivism and non-sexual recidivism. And the focus of individual therapy depends on the specific needs of the client, but it typically includes understanding their sexually harmful behaviors, any grooming behaviors they may have engaged in, any deviant arousal that may have been present, affect regulation, building or enhancing of empathy, exploring interpersonal relationships, trauma resolution, increasing self-worth and esteem, looking at their family history and its impact on youth and any psychiatric issues. So we're doing a lot with these kids. And then some strategies that are typically used are you know, therapy discussions, gradual exposure if there's trauma, repetition, role-playing, modeling of behavior, and homework assignments. What I find is really key is any opportunity to practice learned behaviors such as social skills because in my office they can learn the concept but then being able to take that knowledge and do it isn't always achievable without having the opportunity to practice which is another reason why we don't want to isolate these kids and say you can't do anything with any of your peer groups. So school really becomes a critical factor here of you know, collaborating with them and saying, these were the skills that were learned. Let's come up with opportunities that are safe for the client and kids that he or she would be around for him or her to practice that and to get feedback on it. May I ask, you mentioned gradual exposure as one of the strategies. Can you tell me about that? What does that mean, gradual exposure? Exposure to what? Well, it would be exposure to their own adverse or traumatic experiences. So talking about those, again, in a community-based treatment program, you don't want to overwhelm the youth. The same would go for their offense. Most kids have some sort of regret about what they've done. It might start out being they regret it because they got caught, but once they start to understand the impact of what they've done, it can become overwhelming. The level of harm that they've caused somebody else how long that's gonna last in somebody's life can be really distressing. And with that too, there's, I have found in my work that there's stages of disclosure. So you kind of get this overview at first in asking more details about the offense. You can see when the client's being honest or not, 
but everybody, especially outside of this population, we say what we're comfortable with, and as we become more comfortable, we'll disclose more information, more thoughts and feelings that we have. So I always say it's like peeling back layers of the onion. So you just go deeper and deeper into the feelings and thoughts associated with the trauma or with the offense. And the impact on them, their victim, their families. Wow, wow, that's incredible. This has been incredibly enlightening today and incredibly informative. But for those who are listening, are there resources available to learn more about youth who cause sexual harm? Things that you think that must reads for people? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abuse is the organization, and there's an international organization for this as well. It's called ATSA, and they have a website, atsa.com, A-T-S-A. And there's state chapters, and they have a national conference and state conferences every year. For books, there's the Handbook of Clinical Intervention with Young People Who Sexually Abused, and that's a really good one. Dr. William Friedrich has a book, Children with Sexual Behavior Problems, Family-Based Attachment-Focused Therapy. I think that's a very accessible book, provides a wealth of information. And then there's actually a new book that just came out called Psychological Trauma and Juvenile Delinquency, New Directions in Research and Intervention. And this looks at the link between trauma and aggression. The book is also in a special edition of a journal. So if you can't afford the book and you have access to peer-reviewed journals, you can find those articles in there. But I really like that one because, again, it's talking about that connection, which we really haven't been doing as a field what impact does their own trauma history have on their acting out? Mm, totally. Well, I want to thank you for being with us today. And this was an incredibly informative podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Doyle Pruitt discuss youth and adolescents who sexually harm on In Social Work. Hi. I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.